What is up, everybody? This is Ryan from The Scale-Up Show. You're not going to want to miss this one. This one's amazing. I have Yaya Maktarzada on, who was the founder and former CEO of Truebill, which he just done something amazing that I've never seen before. Took his company from a million and a half, two million dollars, all the way to a hundred million dollars in two and a half years. Something else that he did amazing is he later turned around and sold that once they got to a hundred million mark for $1.3 billion to Rocket, formerly Rocket Mortgage. So he actually breaks down his step-by-step process on how he made that a reality and you can instantly apply it to your business. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Yaya Maktarzada, who is the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Truebill, uh, which was acquired by Rocket Money for $1.3 billion, in which he helped grow the company from zero to 100 million with his brothers, who are also co-founders. Yaya, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks. Great to be here. Just a, just a quick correction. We sold it to Rocket Companies and we're changing the name to Rocket Money. Okay, well, thank you for that correction. That's what I had in my notes, so apologize for that. Um, so we'll make a note on that, make sure it's, it's, it's correct. So before we get too deep into uh, kind of the, the episode, it would re- be real quick, uh, wanna go through what's called a revenue rundown. So can you give us an understanding of where you're at in terms of your, your revenue stage right now, in terms of your ARR? Yeah, like you mentioned, it's um, it's north of 100 million. Um, you know, it's been doubling year over year or more for for quite some time. Um, so uh, growth is still really really strong. One of the the interesting or helpful things about our business is um, it tends to get boosted by economic uncertainty. So, for instance, when COVID started or when um, you know, the, the U.S. entered whether we're in a recession or not, you know, high inflation, what looks like a recession. Um, people get more worried about their finances and Truebill being a personal finance app um, means we benefit from that in two ways. One, obviously, people are just more interested in getting their finances in order. And then two, as other companies kind of step back, we can actually like capitalize on that marketing efficiency that becomes available to push forward even faster. Excellent, man. Well, that's good. So <clears throat> you're definitely thriving. Obviously, 2x year over year growth at nine figures is um, over nine, nine figures plus is really impressive. So we definitely want to dig into that. What's your primary go to market strategy for, for revenue growth right now? Uh, it's, it's primarily uh, paid acquisition. Um, one thing that I think we excel at is we probably run a more diversified marketing mix than any company I could possibly think of. So obviously we do the, the obvious social channels like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok. Um, but then we, you know, we just have sort of this relentless team that's super creative in finding new opportunities to, to get our name out there. So that means digitally channels like Reddit and YouTube um, down the line, but it also means uh, we do a ton out of home. So we do taxi tops, we do box trucks, we've done fortune cookies uh, where we have ads inside the fortunes of fortune cookies. Um, we really make a big effort to, to, get promotion from influencers, from podcasters, uh, and really everywhere else. So, um, you know, that, that's super diverse marketing. And then of course, TV commercials also. Um, 
But I think that that super diverse marketing mix is one of the, the key things that sort of helped us scale and accelerate beyond competitors or just other companies in the space. Okay. So you, you pretty much, that's a rainbow of different uh, customer acquisition channels that you have right there. The one that I did not hear you mention, which is near and dear to my heart, is do, have you systemized any customer to prospect referrals? No. So um, not to say we haven't tried, right? But um, organic growth and referral growth was never really a strong suit for, for our company. Um, and, you know, I've got a hundred hypotheses why, but I think fundamentally, you know, look, if you're rich, then your personal finance, you feel great about it, but you don't like talking about it because you're not supposed to talk about it. Right. And if you're sort of not doing super well in terms of your, your finances or just not where you want to be is even a better way to put it. Right. Which is pretty much everyone. Um, it's not something that people fundamentally like to talk about or like to share. Um, mm-hmm. And then with the personal finance app, there's, it's even tougher because there's a stigma where it's like, oh, are you using this app because you're having trouble with your money? Right. So mm-hmm. people don't like to share it. So we've we've tested multiple referral programs and it just, you know, where where it would work with other products, I think in personal finance, it's just a lot more difficult. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's a good hypothesis. Uh, and, and interesting is basically like perceived as like a status decrease. Right. If you're, exactly you're doing that. So which people are really sensitive to. So, so that leads us into our next question, right? And, we're, and we want to dig into some of the uh, the go-to-market components because obviously with that that broad spectrum, there's there's got to be some amazing nuggets and patterns and trends you, that you've seen. So let's talk about your solution though. So what exactly does it do and how does it serve people? Sure. So Rocket Money, which is what we call the app now, um, is I'm biased, but I really think it's the best personal finance app out there in terms of just really giving you a comprehensive tool, comprehensive set of tools to understand your money and do better with it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when when I started building it, I tried all these other budgeting apps and they would do things like give me an alert and say, you know, you spent too much at dinner last night. You need to come back. Right. And I always hated that. Like, (laughs) not only did I hate it, but it wasn't helpful. Like I know what I spent on dinner last night. I was there. I signed the check. Like this is not (laughs) helpful. Right. Um, so I wanted to create like the finance app for me that would make my life easier and put money back in my pocket, but not ask me to not go out to dinner or to sacrifice my lifestyle. And so that formed a lot of the core features that we built into Rocket Money. So for instance, um, the first thing we launched with was just tracking and canceling subscriptions. So um, when you sign up, you get this really clean dashboard. You connect your credit cards, your bank accounts, so we scan the transactions and you get a really clean view of everything you're paying for. And I think most people are surprised to just see how many things they're paying for per month and how much money is flowing out of their account automatically. Right. And then we take it a step further. And, you know, if you don't want that newspaper or whatever subscription it is um, and you're not using it, you know, you don't have to call and wait on hold for 20 minutes and explain why you want to cancel. We have a button right there in the app and you can click, you can click cancel this for me and it'll get rid of it for you. Right. How so, do you do that? Wait, wait, wait. How does it do that? I just don't. <laughs> Just tell me really quick because I literally just dealt with this crap a couple of weeks ago where the freaking Chicago Tribune held me at hostage. It wouldn't let me cancel. I had a call and it was, it, anyways, don't get me started, yeah. but you do that. <laughs> it, it really depends on the service, right? So, so what happens is, I mean, there's no, there's no like easy solution to build something like that, right? You, you, you launch it and at the beginning, and by the beginning, I mean the first couple of weeks of the company, it was me getting on the phone and calling the, the Chicago <laughs> Tribune on your behalf, right? But as you get volume, you sort of start building a knowledge base of like, 
what are what is every subscription out there and like how can it be canceled right and so then you find out okay maybe this service has this fax number and we can actually like auto generate a fax to go in there and they don't publish the fax number but it exists and that'll work or this one you know it's something easy where you can they have an email address that you can send something to or Maybe you build um, a robot or a scraper that will actually log into your account for you and, and like the mouse will navigate and click the cancel button automatically, right? Um, on some server somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, there's no one way to cancel all subscriptions, but as you do this millions of times, you sort of, and you have a team dedicated to, to making it scalable and making it efficient, you just build out this massive cancellation engine, which is sort of an interesting asset that you end up sitting on over time. <laughs> All right, man. Sorry about that. A little personal pain there in case you couldn't tell um, from right. something that I experienced. So keep going. I, t- I totally threw you off track. Yeah, no, no worries. And so then from there, you know, the project evolution was really just sort of the core team saying, well, what else would I like this thing to do? And so the next thing was um, was bill negotiation. So I said, you know, it'd be awesome as if this could lower my Comcast bill or my cable bill or lower my cell phone bill. Right. And so now, um, you know, after you get rid of your subscriptions uh, or after you sign up, that looks at your cell phone, your cable bill, whatever other bills you have and says, Hey, you know what? Like we see people similar to you paying less for the same service. And that may be because for instance, you've got your cell phone two years ago and a better plan is available, but you just haven't switched to it. Right. And it's got more minutes and more data and it just costs less. So, um, or maybe you've been there for two years and we happen to know that that phone company has a two year loyalty discount that they'll give you if you, if you argue with them over it. Right. Um, so it'll identify your, your negotiable bills. And if you give us permission, we'll get in touch with all those providers and lower your bills. Uh, and then from there, it's just got a whole suite of other features. So for instance, it will help you create and set budgets. It'll give you all sorts of transaction monitoring and transaction reports. So you can see sort of where you're spending your money in context in a way that's, that's digestible so that you can really understand what's going on and then improve it over time. Um, and then it has other things you'd want, like uh, credit, credit score, credit reports, um, automated savings where it'll help you automatically set aside money to save for you know any number of financial goals. Um, and we even have a, a credit card in beta right now that um, I think is just a better credit card than what's out there for most people. Okay. That's, that's awesome, man. And do you want to give a, a real, real quick plug for the new credit card real quick? Yeah, it's called, it's called the true card. It's in beta, so it's not open available yet, but um, the way there's a wait list. Um, but uh you know, if if you look at the economics of most credit cards, they're really designed to get you into debt, get you to revolve that debt, and then uh, get you to pay you know twenty three percent interest on that debt. Right? And so we looked and said that that doesn't make sense. What if we sort of rethought it from the ground up in terms of building a credit card that is designed to get people into financially healthy behavior rather than get people paying a ton of interest? Love that, man. So uh, I think it's a great idea and, it, and the world definitely needs something like that right now. So how large is the team um, for the Truebill division? What are they, I it's should say? About, Rocket. Yeah, for Rocket Money, Truebill, it's about 175 people. Okay, cool. So pretty, pretty lean team for 175. And then, you know, so on your way, because you, you, we talked about fundraising, are, are you, before you sold, did you, was it, how I guess were you bootstrap? Were you funded? What was that process like? Yeah, we did. Uh, so so it was about six years from launching the company to selling, um, and we did five rounds of funding. Well, five and a half rounds of funding. So we did a seed round, then a Series A, Series B, Series C, and Series D. Um, 
And the C, the, the B, C, and D were all back to back to back. And the, the C, the A, and the B were really, really tough. So, and, and um, I want to come back to that a little bit later because the, the funding cycle is like super interesting. Um, so just to recap, so you went through from six years to launch to sell. So six years from zero to hundred million. Yeah. Well, it was more like, um, like two and a half years from zero to hundred million, but yeah. Or, or I should say um, two and a half years from one to hundred is a better way of putting it. Okay. And, so, then, and then two and a half years from zero to one. <laughs> That's insane. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that and then integrate the funding stuff in there because like, Two and a half years to go from one to a hundred million is insane. Um, yeah. Now in a good way, right? I, I'm giving you props for it. You know, like I told you at the beginning of the show, you're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Now that you need to hear from me, but so let's talk through that. So why did it take you two and a half years to get to zero to one? And then let, let's let's take it in two chunks. What's why did it take you two and a half years to get from zero to one? And then why did it? Let's go to the next phase after that. Yep. Okay. Well, so your first six months, you you know, you're not making revenue because you're just building something that someone out there is going to use. Um, but once you're there, you know, I think um, I was just stupid to be honest. Um, and and the conventional wisdom out there was stupid, and I listened to other people instead of looking at the actual data. Uh, and I did way too mm-hmm. much of that for the first three years of this company. So, uh, Rocket Money, it's the category is PFM, personal financial manager, right? Um, and Mint was the original. And then other people have touched on it with very, touched on that category with various degrees of success. So Credit Karma had some personal finance features. Obviously, they got really big and did really well. And then there's a bunch of other companies that did it um, or tried to do it. One of the, the early ideas that I had in my head that was completely wrong was that no one is going to pay for this. It needs to be free. Um, and especially since our app was centered around tracking, canceling subscriptions, I thought, how can I charge a subscription fee for an app that gets rid of your subscriptions? That's just not going to work. And so my thinking was that this app needed to be monetized via affiliate deals, which is what Credit Karma and NerdWallet and really and Mint and really everyone else in the space was doing. They were you know, giving you information about your finances and then telling you to get credit cards or to get a personal loan or something and then, or to, you know, get new insurance and then, and then, getting paid for that by the, uh, by the affiliates. So for the first 18 months, um, 18 to two, 18 months to two years, we were completely dependent on affiliate revenue. We did not have a premium model. Um, and so I was out cutting deals with credit card companies, um, and then trying to push people in the app to get a new credit card. Um, and it didn't work. It didn't work for a number of reasons. One, uh, you know, there just wasn't enough revenue there. There wasn't enough engagement there to, to get enough clicks and to get enough conversion. But two, the bigger problem was when you do that, it really throws off your North Star. So, so if you think about what, what drives our product evolution today, it's really simple. It's people pay us a monthly fee for the app and we try to make the app as useful as possible. Right. It's a very straightforward bargain. And and our thinking is if the app delivers value, people will keep it and keep paying for it and we'll have a successful business, right? So we want to make the app as useful and valuable as possible. But when you are living off an affiliate model, um, that's not the model, right? Um, or that's not what, what's driving your, your the, the success of your business. All of a sudden, it's, it's not how do we make this the most useful product possible. It's at least part of your thinking is how do we get more clicks on credit cards or how do we get people to get more credit cards, right? From... Chase or 
Capital One or whoever's paying out that day. Um, and so all of a sudden you're not trying to make the product more useful. You're trying to make the product more, um, just, just drive more clicks, right? And and that can give you a lot of wrong signal. It can get you to optimizing towards like local maxima instead of thinking big picture. And it's it's ultimately just a just a flawed way to build anything that is going to be of value to anyone. Yeah, no, I can see that where that would jostle your, As, you know, kind of your your priorities and, and your focus. And affiliates are great. Yeah, it wasn't really until we were on death's door. Um, we we had three months of runway left in the bank. Uh, and I pulled the whole team in the conference room and said, all right, guys, we have time for one more bet. Um, let's put all the ideas on the whiteboard and, and like pick which one we're going to do before the, you know, the, the ride ends. And uh, one of the ideas on the whiteboard was, was premium, right? Let's just like have a monthly subscription. And uh, it was a bit of a Hail Mary pass, but you know, it, it ended up working and it sort of gave us like a little glimmer of glimmer of hope, glimmer of light. And we used that and we got, we got one small angel check, which would give us a couple months more runway and then um, during that time, you know, we we did some work on the funnel and got the conversion rate up, and we, you know, ultimately able to take that to piece together a really really rough Series A. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. So your product is, I mean, it's not like a super high costing product. Like what was that? No, it can, we actually, we let you choose your own price. Um, that was something I, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, so you can choose a price anywhere between like three and $15 a month. Um, and uh, so yeah, yeah, it could be as little as $3 a month. It, it, you can also get a ton of value out of it for free. So you don't have to pay for it. Um, there's, you know, every every feature is free with a premium component. So, for instance, subscription tracking is free, but if you want us to do the cancellation for you, that's premium. Um, budgets are free, but if you want custom budget categories, that's premium. Um, credit score is free, but if you want the full credit report, that's premium. Okay. So, like, with the, if you're looking at that with the, the free plus, so you said people could pick the price. What, what did most people land on then between the three and down? Somewhere in the middle, it, it it depends. Over time, you know, we've constantly run experiments on um, what color that page is, or do we have a little star neck, like a circle that says like most people pick this or recommended, right? Um, so you know, it it varies based on when people signed up, but it's somewhere in the middle there. Okay, so that saves you, right? That's um, and then that that takes you. You said you pieced together a Series A. So what revenue were you at then when you were you were trying to get your Series A? At the Series A, we were, I think we we're about one point five million. Uh, okay, and- so one point five million. You got the um, you know the the paid for it plus premium components. So then, what what happens from there? Like, how did you you piece it together? How did you pr- proceed from you know that one point five million to a hundred million in the next two and a half years? <laughs> yeah. So at the time, um, you know, we were growing. Uh, 20% month over month. Um, so 
it took about it, about 12 months after the series a, we were at, um, you know, six to 8 million, somewhere in that range. Uh, and we went out to do a series B and just like the series a literally everyone in the world passed on us. Um, I, I reached out to pretty much every firm I could possibly think of and, um, you know, pitched them and, and the graph looked great. It looked, you know, pure exponential graph, 15% month over month growth, like clockwork. Um, never, never a down month, never a month, even with, we didn't have a single month with less than 10% month over month growth. Um, and that wasn't just the revenue growth. It was, you know, every metric was improving. Um, retention was improving, engagement was improving, premium conversion was improving, average sale price was improving, but no one wanted to touch it. Um, and finally, uh, we got an inbound inquiry from this fund called Eldridge, who I'd never heard of. Um, and I kind of blew it off and didn't take the meeting. And then they reached out again and I, I did take the meeting and um, they were just awesome. Like to this day, they're one of my favorite investors. I can't say enough great things about them, but um, you know, 20 minutes into the meeting, they're like, we love this. Like, we want to do this. Let's get it done. Um, and so that was a, that was a major, major lifeline for us and a huge relief. Uh, and, and so we did that. And then uh, 12 months later, we must have, you know, four X again. So I think we were at um, 25 million or something. Uh, and um, we uh, went out for a series C and again, everyone in the world passed on us. Um, which is funny because there's so much inbound interest. Like we get all these, I get, you know, half a dozen emails a day, like from big name funds. Like, I love what you're doing. I'd love to be involved. I couldn't be more excited. Can we please meet? And then I'd meet and I'd show them every chart going up into the right. And um, yeah, just no one wanted to do it. Uh, and finally, Bessemer, which is a, which is a really fantastic fund. Um, one of the guys there, his name's Kent, uh, just really liked what we were doing. And he said, I love the product. I love where you're going. Um, let's do this. And so, so they did series C and then uh, about six months later, Excel came in uh, again. We pitched a bunch of funds. They all passed um, not as many, but we did pitch a few and they passed Excel came in and did the series D. Um, and then six months after that, we were acquired. Okay. So why do people keep passing on you? So I think there was a couple of reasons. One is um, there was just a really, really bad stigma on the personal finance category. Um, so the fintech category for the last five years up until this year was, was the hottest thing ever. So everyone wanted to invest in fintech. But in terms of personal finance specifically, if you look at the last 15 years, the largest exit uh, was Mint, which was sold for $170 million. Um, I think the second largest one was, um, was Level Money, which if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken, sold for 30 or $35 million. Um, Prosper, I think also sold for like 20 or 30 million. Um, I could be wrong, but that's off the top of my head. So, so, and this was, it's, it's an obvious idea, like an app to help you manage your money, but a lot of people have tried it and no one has succeeded at it. So I think investors were just weary of that in general. Um, two is, um, you know, for consumer B2C investors, um, personal finance does not have the same engagement and user behavior that you would see in, a game or a photo sharing app or anything else. Right. Um, and so it's, it's hard to comp to other companies because I think it's more valuable. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty sticky, but people are just not going to open it every day. Some small percentage will, but a lot of people will be content just opening it monthly or just content getting their weekly summary emails and like seeing all their reports in an email and not needing to open the app. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people miss that. And then I think there was just a ton of investors chasing the shiniest object, 
regardless of what the data and the metrics suggested. So there would be companies that launched with, you know, what I would call kind of gimmicky features that instantly got a lot of VC attention and got, you know, a 200 or $500 million valuation with way less revenue um, just because it was new and maybe disruptive, whereas like a, a personal finance app was not seen as disruptive. So I do think there's a blind spot there on the part of investors. Okay. So, you know, obviously if you got 1.3 billion, your exit, the next closest was 170 million. What did you do on the product side to make that, to, to 10X that differential almost basically, you know, like how did, how did you do that? Because what I, what I see with like the, the scale of how fast you grew, you know, from that one and a half or one, one and a half million, a hundred million in two and a half years, like your solution had to have been amazing, A, and B, um, once you got to that point, you know, there had to been some realization of like how, how amazing the product was. So what did you do to, to make that a reality? So I think it's, it's a combination of things, of course, right? Um, one is just we had a good core product that people fundamentally liked and found useful, right? Um, two is we, we had the world's, just the world's strongest, most killer performance marketing team I've ever seen. Um, and this team was just maniacal about, you know, testing new channels and really building complete closed loop, sophisticated tracking and attribution. So we knew very accurately every dollar we spent, how much money we were getting back in a day, a week, a month, and a year and three years. Right. And obviously it can't be hundred percent accurate there, but, but the numbers we were getting back, we were pretty confident in and we were confident enough to make large scale bets based on those numbers. Right. Um, and then, so, and then the third thing is we had, um, on the product side, we invested really heavily in, again, tracking and measurement such that, you know, any change we made anywhere in the product very quickly, we had a really solid understanding of how that changed, not just user behavior, but ultimately LTV. Right. So for instance, um, you can raise your price you know, very easily. That takes, that takes 10 minutes to do. Right. Um, and then you'll, you know, the unsophisticated, excuse me, the unsophisticated way of looking at it would say, okay, well, my price went up by 20%. My conversion went down by 10%. This is a 10% gain. Right. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? You got to look at retention. You got to look at virality. You got to look at all sorts of factors, right? You got to look at what other like tertiary features they engage with in the app and, and does that vary based on the, the, the price point. Then you got to look at by channel. So for instance, do those percentages hold? Um, are they the same for someone who came in from Facebook versus someone who came in from a billboard, right? Um, and so we we spent a lot of time and energy building out complete visibility, tracking, attribution, and just and just intelligence on on those figures, right? And what that let us do is uh, deploy a framework such that we could deploy we could push out tests on really every funnel in the app. At a, at a rate that was just faster than, than competitors or, or any other company I've seen, right? And so, you know, I'm making a lot of sweeping generalizations, but I do think today we have more tests running in the product than, than any company I can think of or any product I can think of, except maybe, maybe some of the big game developers. But um, we do have a ton, of, a ton of tests running, right? So you're testing, we're testing our sign-up funnel. We're testing our onboarding flow. We're testing our premium conversion screen. We're testing our, our premium cancellation screens or our like premium retention screens. Right. Um, and you know, if you're disciplined about that, 
all of those metrics are just going to constantly march up over time. So your premium conversion rate is going to, is going to, you know, march upward over time. Your uh, premium price is going to move upward over time. Your retention is going to move up over time. Right. And each one of those increases the LTV. And every time you increase LTV, what that lets you do is it lets you go to your marketing team and say, all right, you can bid a little bit more today than you could yesterday. Right. And if you do that a hundred times, suddenly you're significantly able to outbid your competitors which means grab ad inventory that they can't afford to grab. Um, and what that means is you're grabbing market share. As well as kind of creating the market and creating the category as well. Love that, man. And so how many tasks would you estimate you're running right now? You said you think you run more than anybody else. In the product, let's just talk about product and then I want to hear marketing. In the product, dozens. Okay, so at, at all times you got like, 24 to 36 tasks running on like, and when you say, when you say product funnels, you, you mean for like each kind of like pathway or component within the product that could lead to additional revenue or those other. So for instance, right now we have, um, when you sign up, um, we say, Hey, like what are your financial goals? Right. And you might say, I want to save for a home. I want to get out of debt. I want to buy a new car. I want to begin investing. I want to grow my net, my net worth. Right. These are all goals. Right. Um, so a test could be as simple as listing those horizontally or like having them in, uh, in boxes. As simple right. as that. It so could, be, really it could be that page like... is text or it's got images on it, right? Um, it could be it has images or it has illustrations on it. Yeah, so you're really taking like a direct response marketing approach um, that someone would normally take with copy or funnel or visuals, but you're integrating that, that in the that product, right? It goes from start to finish, like from the first ad they see to the... Um, you know, after using the app for, for a year, the emails you're getting or, or the app screens you're seeing, it's everything is like maniacally okay. tested yeah. and measured for LTV and retention and a whole slew of other metrics. And so, yeah. So like if you had a guess on the marketing side, then like from that initial touch point to let's say the paid ads to the funnel, how many tests are you running on a consistent basis? There? So in ads, I mean, hundreds, um, you know, we have we have hundreds of ads live. Um, those ads have multiple variations. Um, you know, we we have a tool, for instance, where uh, you know a lot of our ads are videos, obviously, and and it might be a, a fifteen second video on Instagram. We have a tool we use. We didn't build this, um, but uh, it shows video watches by second. And so, what you can see is, for instance, okay, we have this ad, and from two to three seconds, people are dropping off. Right. And so maybe your first your first uh, scene in the ad is four seconds long. You go, you know what? No, like we need to shorten that to two seconds and then cut the camera to something else at exactly two seconds, because that's when we're losing people is two, two and a quarter seconds. Right. And so. Um, wow. Or, or we'll test two against each other and one will have the same scene for four seconds. and Then the other will have like two two second scenes to open it up. Right. Um, so that's the level of testing we're doing on the on the ad creative. OK. And what's the tool that you're using with that? Um, it's called Dynamic Sequence. Okay. Never heard of it before, but um, that's pretty cool, man. And so uh, so this is this is really interesting. So I guess like one of the things that stuck out to me too is um, you know, how you got from the size, how you got to the size, and, and your team is relatively small for that. I mean, I, there's companies that are 10 million that have mm-hmm. 380 people, right? Um, so I guess like the level of testing and the depth of that across product and marketing, like how did you, 
How did you make that a reality with such a small team? I think it comes down to prioritization, right? Um, you really do have to invest in building out the frameworks to be able to like test broadly and at scale. But ultimately, it, it ends up saving you a lot of cycles, right? So there's definitely decisions that we did not make um, or things we didn't build or avenues we didn't go down as a result of testing that, that saved us way more cycles than, than the upfront investment of building your, your testing frameworks and your, your data infrastructure. Okay. So what's your framework then for developing like testing and prioritization within that? So one of my favorite things is vapor tests um, where, you know, I, I'm, maybe people in the company will, will disagree with me, but I'm hugely anti-survey. Um, I think surveys can be really misleading and, and just tell you the wrong thing. Um, you know, there's a Steve Jobs quote where he says, uh, in regards to the iPhone, he said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a smaller phone, which is, which is true, right? Because back then, like the hottest phone was like the Razor because it was the thinnest, right? Um, and then he threw it all on his yeah. head and came out with the iPhone, which was bigger and thicker than anything else out there. Um, so... Anytime possible, I prefer doing a vapor test over a survey, um, or at least in conjunction with. And so a vapor test is basically you launch, you pretend to launch a feature in the app without actually launching it. So for instance, let's say I'm thinking about um, launching an investing feature, right? Um, I could survey people and be like, hey, do you want uh, investing to be available in Rocket Money? Right? And some percent will say yes, some people say no, and some people say I don't care. Um, that's a useful signal, but what, to me, what's a more useful signal is I don't, I'll put a button in the app or a little, a little section in the app and I'll say, now introducing investing by rocket money, click here to get started. Right. And then like, I'll look at who clicks that and then I'll say, all right, like how much do you want to get started with? And this will only go out to, you know, a 10th of a percent of users or, or a tiny, tiny number. Um, and people say, okay, I want to invest $1,000. Right. And then the next year will be like, all right, great. Like, sorry, like we're working on it. You're top of the wait list. We'll let you know when it's ready. Right. Um, which I don't love doing, but, you know, I think it's for the greater good, uh, because then what you get is you have actual data about like what percent of people that see it would actually click it. What would their average starting investment size be? Um, you know, what percent would um, complete the next step? You could even put in the next step. Uh, and that's that's way more reliable than what people tell you they want. OK, so you do that. Right. And then how do you proceed from there? Like in terms of like systemizing out at a broader level. Well, from there, I mean, you know, you've got your resources and, and depending on what that data tells you, that, that lets you make a really informed decision from like a, a business case, right? So you can say, all right, um, there's, there's different vectors that you prioritize across. So for instance, um, is this going to drive revenue is an obvious vector, right? Um, is this going to increase retention is a vector. Um, is this going to make the product more useful, or more helpful for people, right? Because there's things you can do that mm -hmm. help people, but they don't move a business metric, right? But it's, it's valuable by itself. And then, you know, a fourth one could be even like, is there enterprise value to this? So for instance, um, a year ago, launching a debit card was like what the market wanted. And Chime got this $30 billion valuation with barely any revenue because they had debit cards and that's the market thought that was the most valuable thing ever, right? So for instance, if you're considering should we launch a debit card you say okay is this going to move the needle on revenue not really um oh and then the last one sorry that i skipped is will users actually do it right because if only one percent of people are going to do it oh, you know okay. even if it does drive revenue and people love it it's not useful right um but so you say okay like let's launch a debit card like is it gonna move the needle on revenue no 
does it help people? Not really. <laughs> Will people use it? Not really. But the market loves it. It's got huge enterprise value. So that would be why you would think about doing it, though I don't think it makes sense. Okay. Love that, man. It's super specific and, and clear. So I can see where your head's at now on that. So, and you're right. Like some of the most value that you have is is not in the things you do in the thing, but it's in the things that you don't do, right? So you could just waste so much time going down the wrong path and uh, go ahead. You're uh, yeah, I think like that's that. actually the, the single biggest contributor to our success. Um, and I can't take credit for it. It was actually my brother's doing, but um, you know, for years, every time I saw a company do something, launch a feature and get like a mega valuation without, you know, facing the same scrutiny of revenue or retention or anything else that we were getting turned down for, you know, I'd go into frenzy and say, we need to launch this thing and we need to launch it now. And we need to like pause work on everything else. Um, and he was very good. We didn't always do that, but, but most of the time we did, he was very good at saying, you know what? Like, no, that's not us. We're going to stay with the core product. It's working. People like it. It's scaling. Let's, let's stay our course. And in the end, that ended up absolutely being, being the right path for us and, and the most successful path. Right. But, um, it's tough, you know, like people are telling you your company's not valuable. And then another company launches doing for instance, doing uh, pay advances, right. Um, and gets a billion dollar valuation and it takes a ton of discipline, more discipline than we had actually, cause we did launch pay advances, but it takes a ton of discipline to, to see that and not want to launch it yourself, but to instead like stay, building your boring, you know, budgeting tool. Right. No, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So one last question, and then we got to wrap it up just based on time. But what would you say is the number one reason why you were able to get $1.3 billion for the company you built where the rest of the market was getting table scraps or nothing at all, especially considering, you know, all prior to that, you were you were not looked at as very attractive by investors. So it's, it's like you totally flipped the script. So how, how did, and I, I know this is, might sound like a loaded question, but how did you make that a reality? Um, and, and what do you think is like the single most biggest contributing yeah. factor to that? Um, I don't know if I agree that other, other companies were getting table scraps. Uh, valuations were, were high across the board. <laughs> well, maybe not table scraps, right? But 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 significantly less. So like one-tenth or, or less than what you were getting. Well, if you're comparing Mint, you know, that was... That was more than 10 years ago. But to answer your question, like when we, when we, after we announced it, TechCrunch wrote an article saying like, this is way too low. Like why did this company sell for so little? So um, I think you got to look at what, what rocket companies actually got in the deal, right? They got the biggest, best, fastest growing personal finance app, right? They got really the only personal finance app that can acquire users at scale, um, in a, in a very profitable way, right? On top of that, um, obviously rocket companies, the, the bulk of the revenue there is, or the largest piece of that business is uh, rocket mortgage, right? Which is a very transactional business. You don't typically think of yourself as having a relationship with your mortgage provider, right? Or with a company that you could potentially get a mortgage with one day, right? Well, Truebill or Rocket Money Now is, is great at building a relationship with people and delivering the value, like helping them with their finances, right? And so if you have this brand that millions of people use and millions of people really like and say, you know what, they're looking out for my finances, they're looking out for me, and they're looking out for my money, then that's a really great thing to have associated with um, your mortgage company, your solar company, or your loans company, right? Which Rocket, have, Rocket Companies has all of those. 
Um, so I think, you know, we, we definitely spoke to other acquirers um, or other potential acquirers and the synergy here just made the most sense. And the, the opportunity of like, if this works out where this can go made a ton more sense than, than anything else. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the business itself was, it still is super healthy. So, um, you know, it's, it's not like they came up with this huge number and we said, yes, but we would have taken a lot less or, or the market was taking a lot less. Like we had term sheets from VCs from really good VCs for that same range of money. Um, so it was not like do this or we're screwed. It was, we're sitting on a business that was, we were very, very confident it was going to continue doubling revenue year over year. Um, we had a very clear path to profitability. We continued to, to either create more market or take it, take market share from competitors. Um, you know, every piece of this business was firing on all cylinders. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was crazy. I think, I think it actually made a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the way you describe it did too, it's like you, you hit the earlier part of the value ladder of, of what a mortgage company would do because you're building that trust while having a reoccurring revenue stream at really good numbers, like amazing numbers across the board that would feed into that and then create a synergistic. That is said so much better than I could have said it. So, or so much more concise. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I had the, I had the benefit of listening to you and explain it and then processing it while you were right. processing yeah, it. I'm listening time. to me so, stumble through it. And then really um, your professional podcaster <laughs> came in and, and cleaned up for me. Yeah. Hey man, this is what I do. I'm in I'm, I'm in sales background, so I always regurgitate in a really tight manner. So yeah, yeah, it was awesome having you on the show. We I took up way too much of your time right now. So where can people find you? Where can they find uh, Rocket Money? And uh, we'll yeah, wrap so up URL there. is just RocketMoney.com. Um, you know, obviously I'm biased and I drink the Kool Aid, but I do think it is just genuinely something that everyone should have. Um, and then I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, or really anywhere else. Awesome, man. Well, we'll pop it in the show notes so uh, people can take advantage of it. And then uh, we look forward to seeing you all in the next episode. Thanks for being on, man. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.